looking at the story of John the Baptist, someone that you don't normally connect through the Christmas story, uh, but he is such an integral part of somebody who's seeking Jesus because his mission, his, his purpose, his plan was to help prepare the hearts of people for the coming Messiah. And in this season, in today's time frame, we are in the middle between the two comings, the first coming of his birth and the second one of his return. And the message is still relevant for us today that it is so important that we have our hearts prepared for his return. And part of the preparation that we looked at last week was repentance. That's not a great Christmas message, but it is because you have to have your heart right in order to make sure that you don't miss out on the coming Messiah. Because in the first coming, there was a nation of people that that's all they knew. Most of them knew God's word. There was Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Sadducees. They knew the Bible like the back of their hand, and everyone still missed the coming of Jesus. Their hearts weren't in the right place. The city of Bethlehem missed the coming of Jesus. The city of Nazareth missed the coming of Jesus. There were people that didn't miss it that we won't even get into today because their hearts were right. They were looking for the Lord to come in that season. And so we want our hearts to be right to be clean, to be living that lifestyle of repentance, but it's also about knowing who you are and who you aren't, right? It's, it's knowing that we know that we are uh, followers of God, but we are not God. We are not in control of all things, and we don't have to be in control of all things. And being able to let certain things go as we approach this season approach this day to make sure that our hearts not only get right, but stay right as he's coming to us. This week, we're going to look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 in the next step of seeking after Jesus. And if you have your Bibles, I'm reading from New King James. Uh, you can read with me or the, it'll be on the overhead. The Word of God says this this morning, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Everybody say Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. We're seeking Jesus as we move toward Bethlehem. The song was written and the lyrics say this, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. 
the hopes and fears of all the years. I want us to just grasp this but for a moment. Hopes and fears are two contrary beliefs. They're opposites of each other. And they come together at one appointed place. The hopes and the fears, the contrary beliefs of all the years of humanity are coming together in one appointed place at one appointed time. What in the world is so remarkable about Bethlehem that that is where the hopes and the fears of all the years previous would come together and meet? Now, when most people think of the city of Bethlehem, what do you think of? Most people think of it, I'll tell you if you don't know, the significance is the fact that that's where Jesus was born, right? When you think of Bethlehem, you think of it because that's where our Savior was born. And we have to ask the question, and Bruce brought it up, why in the world did God choose Bethlehem? Why not choose the city of Rome, which was the center of the political power? the authority over all the known world at that time? Why not Athens, which was the center of intellectual power, that Greek mindset that was literally everywhere? Why not Jerusalem? It was the religious power, the center of religious power. Of all the cities in the world, an unremarkable little town about the size of Smelterville. For real. There's, it's, it's, it's believed that the population of Bethlehem was between 250 and 2,000. So you've got Smelterville and almost Kellogg. Why in the world this unremarkable little town is elected by God to be the birthing center of the creator of all? I think God wanted it to be known that it wasn't about political power, academic power, or religious power, that this was about the all-powerful one humbling himself in human form, the littlest form of human possible, the king on a manger throne. Remarkably unremarkable. It makes this place one of the grandest destinations of all. It might help us to understand this remarkable choice when we understand the lesson behind the choice that God wants us to receive. And in order to receive that lesson, we have to go back in time and look at where this city came from. If you turn your Bibles it's Genesis chapter 35. We're going to read verses 16 through 20. This is an amazing story about Jacob. You have the fathers of the Jewish faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob and his sons become what is known as the nation of Israel. And in Genesis chapter 35, verse 16, the word of the Lord says this, Then they journeyed from Bethel, and then when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, everybody say Ephrath. 
Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. And so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. So we have a city that was originally called Ephrath, but by the time the book of Genesis was written, it's put in, it's put in here that they want everyone to know this is the city of Bethlehem. And it says, Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. The first thing I want us to look at this morning is, is Rachel's death. I want us to understand what God is trying to show us here. And think about the context behind these verses. If you don't know the story of Jacob, in just a couple chapters prior to this, Jacob had literally wrestled with God and was blessed. And then he leaves the wrestling and he goes to meet his brother Esau, who he thinks his brother Esau is going to want to kill him and all of his families for the deceitfulness that he did against his brother. And instead what happens is that Esau wants to bless his brother. Again, he receives the blessings of God. They put themselves in a, in a town, and they're living in this town, and then one of uh, his daughters, Jacob's daughters, is raped by a man in a following village. And so the brothers of her, which are, are Jacob's sons, decide to trick those guys, and they kill all of the brothers. Now, Jacob decides that we better leave town. And so he packs up all of his family. They leave town thinking that if not that entire city, then maybe even the cities around them might follow after them and try to wipe their family out. But you know how good God is, is that it says that the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and no one pursued that family. Talk about whether you deserve it or not, the blessings of God was still in their lives. And then God says to meet with me, and Jacob goes to meet with God at a place that would become called, or would be eventually called Bethel. And that at Bethel, God gave him and reassured him of a promise, of a future, and of a hope. What God was saying is that no matter what you've been through, no matter who you once were known as the deceiver, your family, and even the things that your kids have done, that I am still with you. And not only am I with you to watch over you and to protect you, but I'm going to bless you beyond anything you could ever dream or imagine. And so there's this promise that is given to Jacob when he meets with God at Bethel. And so I don't know about you, but leaving that place, I would think that you would be pretty excited. Woo, I just thought my family was going to get wiped out. But now God is literally telling me that he's going to bless us. Not only did he protect us, but he's going to make us a nation of people. Like, there is a hope here. There, there is a dream that we're going to be pursuing and so they take off from that place that is known as Bethel, and they're pursuing the dream. 
And before they even get to the next little town called Ephrath, everybody say Ephrath, his wife, that he literally worked extra hard for, that he endured humility for, dies. The love of his life while she's giving birth to their youngest son. For all of the continued blessings from God that they could see behind them, Jacob is now left with a newborn baby without his mom. He has 11 boys. That's just the boys. There are several children. We're talking this is a very large family to take care of. And the love of his life is gone. That woman that made him one, that made him whole, is no longer there. Where does that leave their dream? Where does that leave the promise of God? It is here that hope and fear hold each other so close. Jacob buries Rachel at Ephrath, originally called Bethlehem. And it's interesting to note that as we hear of this little town, that the meaning of its name is two different things. First thing that it means is ash heap, which would make sense. The second part of the meaning of the name of this city, Ephrath, is a place of fruitfulness. That place of fruitfulness is also known as abundance. Like two contrary ideas in one word, an ash heap and a place of abundance, of fruitfulness. And yet, as contrary as they are, they're very fitting for this little unknown town that has so much significance. The second story we're going to look at concerning this town is in the story of Ruth. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. This is the story really of a lady named Naomi. But from Naomi comes Ruth and the lineage of Christ. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 say this. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. Everybody say famine. That's relevant. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. It says Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. So, so listen, it said in the beginning they're coming from Bethlehem, but they want to continue in the story of Ruth to let people know that if you knew this city as Ephrath, that these were actually Ephrathites. They, they were the original of Bethlehem, Judah, which is the, is the southern city of Bethlehem, and that these two names are still put together. 
And they went to the country of Moab, and they remained there. The second thing that I want us to see about Ephrathah and Bethlehem is Naomi's bitterness. First, we have Rachel's death. Next, we have Naomi's bitterness. Here's the, here's the humble story of just a regular, ordinary family living in a time in the nation of Israel where there was no centralized government. There was great instability because of the wars that would take place with the surrounding nations of people. There was turmoil in the land. And when this family could no longer make a future for themselves with their, within their own hometown because of this famine, imagine there's a famine in the place that's known for abundance, fruitfulness. It's a famine that drives this family to flee and become refugees in another city. Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, who are now living amongst pagans in a Gentile nation. It would have been a radical transition in life. It would have been like you were born in Smelterville, and all you knew was working at the mine. 300 people live in your town. They didn't have cars, so they weren't traveling to Kellogg, Pinehurst, Wallace very often. If they did, they'd walk or go by horse or whatever they had back then. More than likely, it was very rare that anybody would have went to Cord Lane. Living in the town of Bethlehem, of Smelterville, and they end up, because the mine shuts down, having to move to New York City. And those New Yorkers, they speak a different language. And they have a different attitude. They don't just have small little rundown houses in their city. They have these great big towers that hold more people than my city had. There's a hustle and a bustle and there's paganism everywhere, false beliefs. Nobody's like following after the same general religion, even though we may, may like not believe equally or have the same faith, we understand the same religion, right, in Bethlehem. But you go to a big city and there's all sorts of craziness, all sorts of different beliefs. Can you even imagine what that would be like? And that's the life that these guys transitioned to. It would have been rough to make that transition. And as if life couldn't get worse, Naomi's husband dies. At least she has her two sons until one of those guys die. At least she still has one son until he dies. And now Naomi is living in the slums of New York because she's a refugee. And she has nobody around her to lean on but her two sons' wives. And back then, there wasn't a lot of influence amongst the women. And so Naomi makes a decision. She wants to go back to Bethlehem, Ephrath. And so she leaves the city, and she, her two daughters-in-law want to go with her. 
they, she tells them, like, there's nothing for you. you. This is where you were born. This is what you know. There's so much more opportunity for you here. Like, I'm not having any other boys, and you would be too old if I did. And so it's not going to happen. Just stay here and make the most out of your life here. At least you guys have family here. And there's but one daughter-in-law that decides, no matter what, I'm making a covenant with you. She essentially tells Naomi, what we say when we get married, tell death do us part. And so Naomi's like, finally, okay, Ruth, you can come along with me. And so then Ruth goes back home. All right, Naomi, sorry, goes back home with Ruth. And it says in verse 19, here's Naomi's response when she gets back to her own hometown. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. And why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? You see, Naomi left Bethlehem fleeing a famine, and she returned to Bethlehem a begging widow. If there was ever a reminder that you're an Ephrathite from Bethlehem, a heap of ashes, the time in her life would have been now. Life progresses, and the next time we hear of Ephrath Bethlehem is after the first king of Israel backslides. His name was Saul. And God decides he's going to crown a different king, anoint somebody new. And we get to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. And this is the story of David, but it's also the story of David's homelessness. It says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. So once again, I want you to see a common thread that you see a nation of people that are in turmoil. Things aren't going good in their nation. Things aren't going good in people's lives. The king himself is backsliding. And the elders of the city, this little town, they tremble at Samuel's arrival. They're wondering, why in the world would the vice president of the United States come to Smelterville? But he's going to crown a new president. Does the president know about this? And so they're worried about what's going to take place. Saul is quietly anointing a new king. And I want you to understand when he's looking at who he's, uh, not Saul, sorry, Samuel, is quietly anointing a new king. But who's he anointing? He's not anointing the oldest. He's not anointing the tallest. He's not anointing maybe even the best looking of the sons. He's not anointing maybe even the smartest of the sons. 
He's not anointing the one that appeared to be obvious to everybody else. Instead, he's anointing the youngest. The Bible calls him ruddy. I don't know what ruddy quite is, but he's anointing a ruddy little guy named David. Now, you might think that this would be the highlight of David's life. God's anointing and favor upon him, chosen to be king of Israel. Who would have thought a ruddy little boy from Smelterville would be chosen to lead a nation of people, right? This would be the highlight of his life. I can't even imagine what it's going to be like. Like, imagine the dream and what I could do for my family and for my people, and this is going to be marvelous. But this would actually be the beginning of life preservation. And David would spend the next several years of his life running, hiding, and battling. The dream, the word of the Lord that came to him, it appears to have quickly turned into a heap of ashes in a little town called Bethlehem. Finally, 300 years later, there's a prophet that arrives upon the scene, and he would speak again of this little town called Bethlehem Ephrathah. In Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, it, he writes this, Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. The fourth and final thing that I want us to see in leading up to why, O little town of Bethlehem, is Israel's bondage. Israel at this point in history, 300 years after David, was weak. They were defenseless. They had no hope. And literally, when it came to that nation, they knew all was lost. Their king, King Jehoiakim, had lost his head. Unless God sent a savior right then and there, the Babylonians would literally kill their men, rape their women, and steal their children. Anybody else, if they were lucky to be alive after knocking down the temple, would have been enslaved. Imagine this, in the midst of this horror, that the prophet would write these words declaring an incomprehensible word from God. This does not make sense. That a Savior was coming out of one of the smallest cities in Israel, Bethlehem. But of course, the Savior, he didn't arrive on time. And so Israel was literally destroyed and turned. Not just Israel, but Bethlehem, specifically, into a heap of ashes. Like many Old Testament prophecies, Micah's prophet, uh, promise of the coming Messiah was yet to come. What I want us to see is that throughout 1,700 years of biblical history, 
1,700 years of biblical history that God was setting the stage for the main event. That in this little town, now strictly called Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, known for its agriculture, known as the place where bread was provided. I even read somewhere that strangers, foreigners, people who were hungry and starving could come to the city of Bethlehem and they would know that they could receive a loaf of bread, that there was provision in the city. So throughout 1,700 years of biblical history, God was setting the stage for what would be a miracle. The ashes of Ephrathah would reveal the beauty of its fruitfulness as it produces who is known as the bread of life to bring forth God's own son, Jesus Christ. You see, God allowed his son to be born in Bethlehem, not only to fulfill prophecy from Micah, but because he wanted to illustrate in his relationship to mankind that which God will often do when he chooses the insignificant to accomplish his will and the unremarkable to reflect his goodness. That's the way God always functions. And that what I want us to hear this morning is why did God choose Bethlehem is the same reason he chooses you and I. His word says, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul's writing to the church and he says, this is why I take pleasure in my weaknesses. Everybody say weaknesses. In the insults, in the hardships, in the persecutions, in the troubles of life, this is why I take pleasure. Now, everybody listen to that again. This is why I take pleasure in my weakness. Because this is where we struggle sometimes. This is why I take pleasure in the insults that happen to me. This is why I take pleasure in the hardships that are all around me. This is why I take pleasure in the persecutions, the people that speak against me. This is why I take pleasure in the troubles that happen in my life. For when I am weak, I am strong. And why is it that Paul is strong when he's weak? Because that's when God is strong. God prefers to use our weakness because our weakness is what teaches us to depend on him. There's so much I could talk about in this aspect. A lot of times we think, well, I can't do anything for God because I'm not good at this. I'm not good at that. I'm not like this person or that person. But God will always take our weaknesses, our insults, and our troubles, and it'll be through those things that he will use them to make us strong, to glorify us. Not us, him. Why, I'm in. I'm messing up today. <laughs> I think so many times people are like, well, I can't do that. I'm not good at that. I can't sing like Ed. Nevertheless, God will use 
what you think is trouble and hardships and insults to glorify himself. God wants us in that place where we're relying and trusting on him. And what happens is that what we see with our eyes is we see men and women in their strength, what we view as their strength. And we think, oh, they're somebody in the kingdom of God. And listen, quite honestly, most of the time they're functioning from a place of weakness in that position. And God is just using them and glorifying himself through them to accomplish his will and his purpose. And if it ever gets to the place where that person thinks that they're somebody because of God using them in their weakness, then oftentimes what happens is God pulls back and is like, okay, let's see who you really are. Our weakness will reflect. Or he'll say, okay, you think you're the one that's in control? You're the one doing this? You're the strong one? Let's see what happens now. I can promise you this, and for those that have been here, as long as I've been pastor, you know this. I hate public speaking. Well, how do you preach? I mean, if you hate it, you could go 15 minutes and spare us the extra 45 every Sunday. I hate it. Only my wife can remember, it seems like, the very first time I started doing announcements in our church with our previous pastor. My voice shook so much, you couldn't understand what I was saying. Only she understood on Sunday mornings when I would wake up in the morning and I would think I got to do announcements and I would get to the church and I would have some excuse to give the pastor as to why I couldn't do announcements that Sunday morning. I would find the youth pastor, his brother, Percy. I would find anybody I could. Hey, I'm, uh, yeah, tummy ache. Just not feeling so good this morning. Come up with some excuse as to why I couldn't get up there and talk in front of people. I definitely never wanted to become a pastor because that would mean I'd have to speak every Sunday and sometimes during the week. And so the first thing I did is ask that we not have anything during the week but a prayer service. You want to know why? I didn't want to preach because I don't like speaking. I get asked all the time to speak at different places. Riley's with me in the only place I really ever left our church to preach at two summers ago for Pastor Todd's summer camp. The only time in my life. And I hated it. Sometimes people will say, will say something about my preaching, and if you ever watch me, I hope that you never get that I'm prideful from preaching because I would dismiss it and I hopefully I don't come off as cold but I just it's not I don't feel like it's me and what I want you to understand this isn't a, a story about Corey this morning this is a story about Jesus Christ is that he can take a shivering little voice that's full of fear to get in front of people and put him in a place where he has to do it every single week 
for 19 years. Now, mind you, you're thinking every single week would, you know, be okay, but you don't do it every single week anymore. Of course, I'm looking for my replacement already. And so we have other guys that fill in one or two Sundays a month, right? Like, I, I, I have pastors that will say, you know, you probably could never give up preaching, could you? No, I could. God won't let me. And, and I'm just trying to get across to you guys this. Again, this isn't about me. I don't want anybody coming to me after church and saying, I hope you stay preaching or pastoring. Whatever. Like, it's not about me. What I want you to see is God. Like, that God would come into a place in somebody's life and that through God's strength in what you considered a weakness, he could position you in a place where he shines through. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what your past is. It doesn't matter if it's, you think it's something that you're good at or bad at. Like, more than likely, he will take the things that you think that you're weak in, and he will purposefully use those things in your life to exalt himself. That's who God is. It doesn't matter what your name was, your reputation was. It doesn't matter, you know, Just, it doesn't matter. God will use you wherever you're at in life. And it doesn't have to be like, oh, I have to come to church for a year in order to be used for God's purposes. It doesn't be that I've got to be saved for five years before anything ever comes of this relationship with God. I've seen people that they're saved and they're probably reaching more people in the first six months than somebody who's been saved for 20 years of their life. They don't know the Bible like that person that has known it for 20 years. But they're allowing God to be glorified in their life everywhere they go, in everything they do, with everything that they say. That's what God wants to accomplish through you and I. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes in his first letter to the church, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. The foolish things. We want to think that we can be somebody smart, somebody strong, that we can be somebody successful, that God will choose those kinds of people. And God's word says no. I'm here to choose the fools of the world. People who aren't so full of pride that they're afraid to do something for me, that they're afraid to speak my name, that they're afraid to look foolish for my name, that they're afraid to to go out into the world and put their hands and worship me and express their praise and and talk about me. and, And I want those kinds of people that are willing to be fools for me So I can confound the wise. Why in the world would God choose Peter, the fisherman, who has anger issues, to be the one that would help lead the New Testament church into spreading across the entire world in that time frame? But he chooses those, his early disciples, that would cause the religious leaders of the in the days of the early church to look at them and say, but who are these guys? But peons from Galilee. 
and confound those who think something of themselves that are so full of themselves, they're missing out on Jesus and who he is. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. When it comes to God's kingdom, his values are inversed. He chooses the smallest, the weakest, the poorest, often the most insignificant, unremarkable, and undeserving. He picks ordinary people, and he uses us to create something beautiful that will confound the wisdom of the world. And then he steps into that place, and it is when he steps in with his presence that that insignificant place becomes significant. This is Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And when you understand that principle and you look back, you will see that though Rachel's death was a heap of ashes, that those ashes of sorrow were turned to joy and became the fruit of hope for a nation of Jews as Benjamin would become the youngest tribe, the right hand that would fulfill the 12 tribes of Israel. You can look through Ruth and see the ashes of bitterness from Naomi became the fruit of redemption that would include a Gentile people into the lineage of Jesus Christ. You can look at David and through the ashes of his anointing and the chase and his homelessness would become the fruit of a man who would be known forever as a man after God's own heart, as a king with an eternal lineage. You can look at the prophet Micah, and you could see through the ashes of a city, it became the fruit of the Messiah, a town that would be known for its abundance. The bread, the house of bread, would birth forth someone that would be known as the bread of life. As Bethlehem was so little and yet so important, I want us to leave here this morning understanding so too are you and I. All our hopes and fears from ashes to fruitfulness meet together in one place, Bethlehem, in one person, Jesus Christ, who desires us in all our imperfections, all our weaknesses, all of our troubles. He desires us because his love shining through our brokenness accomplishes his will and reflects his goodness. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I would ask that you would translate anything that I mistranslated, that your word, which is the living word, would come alive in our hearts, that we would understand what it means that the hopes and the fears, two contrasting ideas, come together in a place that may have looked like ashes at one time, but that out of those ashes comes fruitfulness, provision, abundance, life, and everlasting life. Lord, I pray that we would understand 
not only do we prepare our hearts for your return as we did last Sunday, but that you look at us and even in our weakness, you considered us worthy. Worthy enough to send your only son, God in the flesh, to be born upon this earth, to die on a cross because you so desire relationship with each and every one of us. May we understand that the things we see as insignificant are significant in your eyes. The things that we see as unremarkable are remarkable in your eyes. Lord, I pray that we surrender our pride to you. Anything that gets in the way of you having your way in our lives. And in Jesus' mighty and precious name we pray.